I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoy listening to the LRB podcast, then you'll probably enjoy reading the LRB. You can subscribe to the LRB from just £1 per issue. To find out more, go to lrb.me forward slash listen. That's lrb.me forward slash listen. Or click on the link in the description below this episode. Hello and welcome to the London Review of Books podcast. I'm Joanna Biggs, an associate editor at the LRB, and today I'm talking to Jenny Turner, a contributing editor for the London Review, who is the piece in the latest issue about the women's liberation movement. It's a review of Margareta Jolie's oral history of the WLM, called Sisterhood and After, as well as two movies, one pretty bad, the recent Kira Knightley movie, Misbehaviour, and one good but sort of rebarbative, Night Cleaners, by the Berwick Street Film Collective. But the piece is also about shame, anger, forgetting and remembering, and it tells too the story of the British feminism's second wave, all things I hope we'll get into during our conversation. Jenny, thank you so much for taking time to talk to me about this today. Thank you for asking me. The piece starts with the protest at the Miss World contest in 1970, and you remembering the sort of wretched feelings that that sort of light entertainment as a young girl gave you. Is this where feminism began for you? I would have been six or seven when um, that Miss World protest happened, and I don't remember being aware of that at the time. What I was aware of was, I don't know if I was watching the Miss World competition that year, but there were always those programmes. It's the prime time slot on television. It still is, isn't it? And now it's Strictly Come Dancing and... um, the voice and Britain's Got Talent. And back in those days, you'd always have some horrible sleazy man with Miss World. It was um, Bob Hope or it would be Bruce Forsyth and the Generation Game leering basically at um, young women in cutaway swimming costumes dancing. And I don't think I would have known what feminism was, but I do date my understanding that there was something very wrong with relationships between men and women from that. Yes that sense of bodily discomfort and horror that things should not be like that and they were wrong because the way you bring it out in the pieces talking about these emotions all the way through talking about all the emotions around feminism and for you particularly the shame and anger was part of that as something are those the things that you're sort of talking about from being small and knowing that shame was sort of part of it, something weird was happening I wrote the beginning after I'd written quite a lot of the piece and it's important to realise that shame and anger go right the way through Margareta Jolly's book actually and her book is based on the work she's done as an oral historian at the British Library which is I think um, 60 interviews with important women of the women's liberation era. Each of those interviews is um, six or seven hours long And um, Jolly has taken all that material to construct this book as a sort of new, fresh history of the women's liberation movement based on those interviews. And shame and anger are themes that Jolly pulls out of 
all these interviews, they're, they're, they're quite continuous. It wasn't just my idea. I, I, I picked it up from them. Mm, but it definitely resonated with you, right? Oh, definitely. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. We've got this kind of double opening in the piece where you've got Miss World on one side and the night cleaners on the other. Tell me about those two sources for the second wave of British feminism. Something I was trying to do in the piece was trying to get away from that way of talking about um, feminism in waves. I don't know that it's the most helpful way of looking at it, actually. I find it... Um, I was thinking about what the problem with it is, and I think part of it is that it's a bit vague. And of course, that's quite funny because vague, it's um, French for wave anyway, isn't it? <laughs> but I think it's... Um, it's marketing speak, isn't it, really? Talking about feminism as a series of waves. And actually, when you do that, you, it's very easy to get lost just in vague generalities. And what I was trying to do with this piece very much was to focus in on the particular history of the particular British women's liberation movement, which, which um, Jolly's book does very brilliantly. And I was reading the book and I read the bit about Night Cleaners, the movie, and I, I, I knew that movie anyway, and I thought, ooh, that's very interesting because it connects so well with um, the labour struggles that have been going on more recently among outsourced cleaners in um, public sector buildings in London. And I didn't even know that a film had been made of the Miss World protests at this time. And I didn't actually find that out until I was quite far into the piece. And by that time, lockdown was happening um, and it was impossible to see the film because it was re it was released, I think, just the week before lockdown in March. So for a long time, I wasn't able to see it either. So I wasn't able to write about the film. And then eventually I did see the film. And then when I saw it, I realised, A, that it was very bad. And B, that putting it up against night cleaners as an example of a very easy to watch film that I that I would nevertheless argue doesn't really tell the truth about what it's about, up against a quite difficult to watch film, which is full of very truthful and beautiful moments, was just an interesting experiment. So that's what I tried. One of the, the themes walking through it and thinking about writing the history of feminism, what was extraordinary in your piece to me is the way you draw attention to the way what happens when you try and remember it and what happens when you interview someone and it all gets mixed up with their own feelings about their own life and their, what feminism did to their own life. That's one thing I really enjoyed in the piece. But I couldn't stop thinking about that sentence um, from Jessica Reese, one of the historians who started to write about um, this, all of kind of these movements in this, in this period, particularly the revolutionary feminists who were kind of instrumental in, I don't want to put this too strongly, maybe could explain it better but the last um, conference in Birmingham of kind of making that a very difficult time in it making it the last conference making it less likely that women would meet again to decide to ask for what they wanted and one of the things that she said to you I think she said that she felt very lonely even as I was surrounded by feminists and that's something I just keep on thinking about um, obviously, you don't expect to get on with all other women, but there's a still a funny sense that you should be able to get on with feminists. And it can change what you're able to do in the feminist movement if you just feel lonely among people who you don't think you should feel lonely among. Does it have to be lonely feminism? Was it, you talk a little bit about your time in Edinburgh, was that lonely for you? And, and I always think, must feminism always be so, can it also be funny and 
you know, amusing and full of energy? Well, of course, of course. I mean, I think, I think to give a bit of context, this bit of the piece is about a younger Australian um, scholar called Jessica Rees. And I found a couple of papers that she wrote about 10 years ago when she was writing a PhD from Australia about the revolutionary feminist movement in Britain. And this very much interested me because I was at university in the, ni- in the early 1980s and that was the time when revolutionary feminism very much was the thing. I think particularly out of in, in the UK, outside of London. And the revolutionary feminists were the ones who um, had, had a position of um, political lesbianism in particular, the position being that um, even if you weren't sexually into women, it was your job as a feminist not to have sex with men and to have sex with women or not to have sex with women. But anyway, the point being, you don't have sex with men because they're the enemy. I think they had they had one pamphlet called Love Your Enemy about the, when the answer is basically no, don't. <laughs> so anyway, Jeska had done this um, research into the work of the revolutionary feminists And I read her paper and it was incredibly interesting and it focused in particular on the last National Women's Liberation Conference in Britain, which was in Birmingham in 1978 and which broke up basically in a big split between socialist feminists on the one side and radical revolutionary feminists on the other side and somehow had become so bitter and entrenched that it was never possible to have another um, conference after that. I then discovered that Jessica had written another paper um, at about the same time about her difficulties in researching that paper and about how when she tried to interview various protagonists from the, the events in her first paper, she came across nothing but suspicion, enormous amounts of suspicion and mistrust and people refusing to let her quote from their their stuff until they'd checked every single time she used a quote, and people saying that they didn't want to speak to her unless she was a lesbian, which was a question that she felt she couldn't answer. And she also felt that she shouldn't have been asked it because basically that's not how you do proper research, that's not how knowledge is produced. And She also spoke about how when she presented some of her work at a seminar in London, a famous feminist stood up and told her that she'd got it all wrong and started telling her off about it in public in the middle of this um, seminar. Basically, I, I spoke to Jessica to ask her about these two papers because it seemed to me that there were a lot of links between them. And I was also curious to find out if the paper... That the paper that she'd been attacked for writing, attacked for it being um, not properly researched, was the one I'd read before. And it turned out that, yes, it was. I also discovered that when I'd got in touch with Jessica, that she doesn't do research anymore. She's, she, she doesn't do academic work anymore. And um, I asked her why. And she said that basically that was because she had felt so humiliated by the, the sort of treatment she'd got in trying to research and present the work that she had done, which I thought was terribly sad. And it was Jessica, I think, who said 
that she'd gone into researching feminism because she wanted to feel sisterhood. And instead of that, she just felt very, very, very alone. And I suppose to get back to your question, Joe, I, um, that's a long kind of looping round of context. I think we have to be honest about our own motives. I think if we're doing research and we're writing articles, the egotistical component is inescapable and it's better to be honest about it. And I think, yes, if you're researching and you're writing and publishing, it often is very lonely and that can't be helped. I think if you want to do feminist work and you want to share in collective endeavour with a group of women about something important to everybody without yourself getting to have the last word, then yes, it does. it's not lonely at all. I think political work and writing pieces are qualitatively different. And I think um, we make ourselves very unhappy if we don't understand the difference. You talk a little bit about some of the kind of feminist activities you did when you were in uni- at university in Edinburgh in the 80s. Did that feel different then? Had you come to this kind of understanding then? As I said in my piece, I always felt a very strange disconnect between the sorts of books I liked to read in the 80s and what was available. It was a time of Greenham Common, and I did go to Greenham Common, um, but it made me very uncomfortable. I don't remember it terribly well, but... um, There was a lot of talk about being witches among the people I happened to be with at the time. And um, I didn't like it, but I also didn't know what I should be liking instead, if that makes any sense. So I didn't, I I didn't find, I didn't find the the feminist activities I found in real life as a young woman terribly um, satisfying. Whereas I found found reading about it incredibly satisfying and wonderful. But I think I said in my piece, it might as well have been the Chronicles of Narnia, really, for all the bearing <laughs> it had on real everyday life at the time. Yeah. It's been different since. Yeah. As it happens, uh, I recently read Angela Davis's Women, Race and Class. And... Um, before working on your piece with you and reading it and thinking about it. And over and over again in these histories of feminism, what seems to be happening is that black women's voices are pushed out and people don't want to talk about class. And something that's something that I was so thrilled that in your piece, every moment you're showing us where all of these, all of these voices are being shut out and these things are being forgotten is a big question. Jenny is a bit unfair to ask you, but why does this keep happening? Can we do any better? Are we managing to do any better in our in the kind of feminism that's around at the moment? Well, I think um, presumably you joined the Zoom discussions in August that were organised by the Silver Press. Mm, yeah. And I think um, these were a series of discussions, I think, that were kicking off from the resurgence of um, Black Lives Matter from from June onwards and the very strange lockdown situation we all found ourselves in. And um, the Silver Press put together um, a series of panel discussions with um, black feminists, mostly from the UK and from the US. And the first one, I think, was um, named after a quote from Audre Lorde, the master's tools will never dismantle the master's house. 
And there was one very funny, interesting moment in that conversation where um, Hortense Spillers, who's a really important figure in African-American feminism, she'd been asked, the question that had been put to the panel was, has anything changed for black women? Have things improved? And she said that she thought that they kind of had because there were more um, black women in universities and everyone went, you know, no, it hasn't. No, it hasn't. And um, basically, it's just very difficult, isn't it? It's 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 um, incredibly difficult. I mean, I've always felt that um, the whole point of um, politics is that it's um, collective and it should be involving everybody. So gains that are gains for only some people aren't real gains. Dawn Butler, um, the MP for Brent, I saw her putting it very beautifully once where she said um, that if I'm fighting for my own rights, it's incredibly tiring and depressing. If I fight for somebody else's, it's very energising and liberating. So we've all got to be fighting for each other's rights because that's the way. It's fun and we can keep going. You know what I mean? Mm, Yeah. On the level of um, writing, it can be quite hard to be inclusive and not to follow the instinct just to sort of um, go me, 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 and then sell oneself, the way of monetizing self that's so easily done in the media. And I think that's a huge problem because um, it's very easy for um, white people and highly educated and privileged people to expand to fill all the space available. And there are many, many um, powers that wish that to happen. And so you have to quite deliberately choose not to let that happen and to open up spaces for other people. And um, I think often um, that hasn't happened. I want to hear from people who are different and I want everybody to have a good life and so I I have worked quite hard and go on working quite hard to try and figure out how I can't make that happen but at the very least what I would like to be able to do in my job in my writing is not to be actively stopping that happening so that's what I try to do. And it's easy when there are so many well, it's not it maybe easy as to putting it too much, but that I think it's a very good moment at the moment. Yeah. Um, the academy, as 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 Hortense Spiller said, is full of incredibly rich and exciting voices, black feminists, working class feminists. It's a very very rich moment for a radical socialist anti racist feminism, and that's great. However, when you look at the history, you can see that that has happened before. And it can be taken away incredibly quickly and incredibly easily and forgotten about. And we have to work really hard to stop that happening again. The other thing that comes through in the piece that I wanted to ask you about, because I struggle with it too, (laughs) is this matter of mothers. Um, Now, there are other sort of in kind of Anglo-American feminism, inheritance and mothers seems to be sort of a quite a a big thing in your piece you talk about lots of the feminists who just simply didn't talk about their own mothers and their own relationship they have with their mothers and and what that sort of does 
if you're not aware of that in your feminism, like where does that go? What what happens to it? And I, I've been really interested in other models, and you've written about this too in Italian feminism, where you talk about entrustment and sisterhood and kind of a more of a kind of horizontal model. And I wondered what you thought about what happens with a feminism that's obsessed with mothers or a feminism that's more interested in sisterhood and entrustment and kind of horizontal links. Well, again, as with other things, the thing about mothers is something that comes through very strongly from Margareta Jolly's book. And I should just say here that it's a really, really, really great book. And, um, I can't recommend it to people strongly enough. It's a thing with LRB pieces is that we're encouraged to write around a book. And um, I very much have done that, but I wouldn't have been able to have done any of it without the book. It's a great book and people should really read it. Anyway, Margareta Jolly said that when she interviewed people for her archive, every single person she would ask, how is your life different from your mother's life? And every time she asked it, people either went <gasps> or <sighs> everybody breathed on the, that question and gasped one way or another. For It's a huge question. It's like it's the $65 billion question, isn't it really? And yeah, I think um, to talk about mothers is to enter somewhere that's very dark and full of um, lots and lots of unknown unknowns, isn't it? And that is important. Um, one's relationship with one's mother is tremendously important, obviously. But I think Hannah Arendt said something about how the human heart is a very dark place. And maybe to a great extent, it's best left like that. It does its work in the dark. And politics is about something else. And um, I think that was one of her main dis disagreements with the feminism she knew in the in the late 60s and early 70s. And I mean, I don't entirely agree with her on that. But I do think that what the Italian model of affidamento and um, sisterhood offers is something that's a little bit maybe less dark, less demanding, less passionate, where actually you can just talk and do things with each other. Although I also think something I was thinking about was I think that for sisterhood to be entirely successful, we might have to go back and do more consciousness raising groups and get to know each other a bit better. And I don't know if um, younger women do that at all. I don't know, Joe. perhaps you do. I, I know sort of reading groups, but I think actual consciousness raising groups haven't been a thing and I wonder, I wonder why that is. I mean, you talk a little, a bit about how difficult they can be in the piece, but um, in other ways, how can you know where you even stand on things like rape and abortion if you haven't actually spoken about those experiences with the, with your sisters? You know. Well, exactly. I, I think so, and I wonder if it's time for a lot more of it, and not just among women. I think um, in the labour movement as well. I just think people need to understand each other a lot better and how they understand their lives as political. And it might be very, very interesting to revive revive that bit. Yeah, and I suppose you talk about it in your piece, the CR groups were sort of closed and kind of could get a bit intense. I suppose perhaps one could open them out a bit more and they could be, I don't know how they could be less intense if you're talking about things, things that touch you very closely, but 
maybe we need to learn how to talk about that differently and be okay with people listening to it. The other thing I was thinking about with the mothers thing is that it always, does always seem to need to be some sort of mother. One of the things I constantly thought about when reading your piece was um, the Mouvement de Libération des Femmes, which took on, changed a lot of laws in France in the 70s. But they really... Um, they really relied on Simone de Beauvoir, like being wheeled out and being using all her contacts and being visible on the streets as a kind of like mother that, to the younger, younger kind of activists. And I wonder a bit whether feminism does sometimes just sort of need that, need a sort of mother to kind of be like, oh, it was happened before and it can happen again. Well, who do we have? Is that your point that we don't have a, have, have a mother figure? Did we ever have a mother figure? Would Jermaine Greer do it for you? Kathleen Moran do it for you? Well, no, neither of those do it for me. I mean, I look back to Beauvoir, but Beauvoir's, you know, been dead ever since I was tiny, so there's no help to me. But yeah, sometimes I do think the movement needs it. And I don't, and I sometimes, I suppose you hate and you love your mother is the problem, right? That even if you do need one, she's never going to be enough. <laughs> I don't really relate to that. I don't know. Dawn Butler then. <laughs> No, no, I just, I, yeah, I just, I sometimes wonder about, you know, like whether you do need a spokesperson or not. Like, can things be truly, I think maybe thinking out loud, they, they can be that. They don't actually need a kind of figurehead. They can work horizontally. I think um, Jermaine Greer was such a figurehead for previous generations of British women. Um, I don't know how she went down in her in Australia, where she came from, but definitely for British women, where she made her home, she 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 totally was the figurehead of um, British feminism for a long time, and I think Germaine Greer is has many marvelous points. I really, really do, and she's a wonderful performer. I think about her almost in the same kind of class of performers, David Bowie. But she's also, as a thinker and as a political figure, quite limited in many ways and has done some very bad things as well. But I wonder if perhaps that sort of figurehead was needed in a time when ideas were transmitted between best-selling middle-brow books and broadcast television in a way that's not true anymore. I mean, now our media and communications landscape has massively fragmented, hasn't it? And that is one reason, I think, why we're living in such a great moment for um, black feminist artists and thinkers is because there isn't that exhausting blob of um, BBC-ness stuck on top of um, what the information we have access to. We can get lots of stuff from all sorts of places. And so there are so many writers and thinkers and artists currently that I find incredibly enriching, but I don't think any of them do I want to be my mother. And I don't think they are, I don't think they act as figureheads for me, and nor would they want to be. I think it's just completely changed. Beauvoir was a long time ago. And also not, wouldn't have been, was not that nice to many of the younger women around her. So also deeply problematic, actually. So it's not necessarily a bad thing that she's not there. It's a weird thing. They sort of, they do get things done, like things happen, but they didn't, they're ultimately sort of unsatisfying. Poor mothers, again. Well, poor everybody, (laughs) you know. You know, mothers are human. We're all human. We're all um, very limited and flawed. But I think we get, we do better when we're honest about that and realistic about it. 
Yeah, and they're able to kind of um, step back when we need to step back and make room for other people. And do things together. Yeah, and do things together. Well, I just like what you, uh, as you were talking earlier on about your, your like kind of political work, I was thinking about, I was thinking about Rennie Edo Lodge and her book, the whole beginning of that book, why I'm no longer talking to white people about race was just not wanting to have to keep on explaining this and how doing that work when you're not a woman of colour is not as exhausting in the same way and that, so you, you know, we really should be the ones doing it. Exactly, yeah. I think that's the point of what Don Butler was saying as well. The other thing I, I was sort of wanted to talk a little bit more with you about is how, not just how we make room to for other voices, but how do we make room for the silences? So I was thinking a lot in your piece when I was rereading it today about all the women who left the movement and how do we manage to make space for them and their disappointment with feminism and how it didn't work for them. How do we make room for silences without sort of just forgetting forgetting certain parts about feminism one of the best ways of making sure that everybody forgets everything is to make a lot of noise (laughs) and i think that's that's our problem isn't it in our um massively mediatized and saturated media saturated um landscape there's so much noise all the time that trying to figure out what's important and what really matters is quite hard. And I think a very good way of doing that, actually, is to just shut up and listen for a bit and think, which is another thing that Arendt used to say, isn't it? Um, People need to just think and reflect on what they're doing a bit. I find silence very beautiful and very precious. And... I've often noticed myself in difficult conversations that I don't get the point at the time, at the time of the confrontation. I I will walk away and then maybe half an hour later, an hour later, a day later, whenever, suddenly I think, oh gosh, yeah, I completely missed that. And I think we have to make room for that because these are often quite difficult encounters. And you don't necessarily make your point just by going on and on and on about it all the time. I'm glad you said that, Jenny, because I have that too. I always feel like I'm a very, very slow thinker, especially in arguments that it takes me like a day or to go, yeah, longer, a week to go and work out what I was even thinking at the time. But that might be because it's something really worth thinking about instead of being the fastest and most shallow thing that comes to mind very quickly. Because there is a lot of that with social media. Yeah, the quickness you're expected to do and actually... And the doubling down instead of thinking, oh, maybe I did get that wrong and maybe I do need to rethink it. Yeah, that seems impossible. You say that happens so infrequently. So we just leave room and we have to be okay with that. Yeah, yeah. And then it opens up new aesthetic experiences as well, which is what you find if you watch Night Cleaners. It's a very slow film and has moments of black silence in it to give you time to think. When I saw it, the thing I mostly remember is um, this image of a just a huge tower and the lights being on, you know, because it's black and white and just that, that's almost all I remember from how many hours of watching it. But even that was just such a, just sticks with you, you know, and you can't not think about the people who are, who are behind those lights. 
I'm going to ask you one slightly cheeky question just stolen from the oral from Margareta Jolie to finish the podcast. How do you think your life compares to your mother's? Well, I thought you would ask me that, Joe. <laughs> well, my life's not finished yet, so um, I don't entirely know the answer to that. My mother died five years ago, and um, what I really would like to say, what I think is terribly important to say, is that she was an incredibly difficult person, um, caused me endless amounts of grief, and yet I miss her absolutely terribly, and life was much more rich and flavoursome with her around. And I just want to say that to um, people who, who find their mothers drive them mad, is that um, they are nonetheless um, a great giver of texture, interest and flavour in your life and do try to enjoy it, enjoy them while they're there. Beyond that, my mother was a very anomalous person, I suppose, in a way that everybody's anomalous when you come up close to them. But um, my mother, my mother's father was, um, was a joiner and carpenter in Aberdeen, which is where I come from. And um, he never, never had much schooling. He would have been, he would have left school when he was 14. But um, I know from things that I've heard about him that he was incredibly gifted at maths, even although he didn't get much schooling in it. And um, both my mother and her older brother seem to have inherited that from, from their father, and they were both maths geniuses. What's very interesting about that, to me, is that my mother's brother, my uncle, went to university, did a PhD, went to America, went to UCLA, went to MIT and spent his life as quite a strange and odd man, living on his own with very curious interests in a life that um, quite suited him. I mean, I think nowadays we would say he was um, on the autistic spectrum. I think my, my mother, she passed her 11 plus, which meant that she went to a senior secondary school, as they call it, in Scotland. She also went to university. She went to Bristol to work in the aeronautics industry. And she was one of those computer girls that you see in the photographs, the rows and rows and rows of young women that spent all day doing calculations before they had actual, before they had mechanical computers to do the work for them. But um, after a year or two, I think mum just um, gave up and um, came back to Aberdeen, got married, had kids, worked as a teacher and I actually think that my mother was just as much on the autistic spectrum as my uncle was. But because she was a woman, she had to cover it up and cover it in a shell of conventional femininity. And so she did the marrying thing and the keeping house thing and the having children thing. But I don't think her heart was ever really in it. I think what she really loved was numbers. And I think she also had an enormous amount of fury and rage and frustration because of that. And so you're asking me how my life is different. I think um, I don't carry rage and fury and frustration in the same way, which is, a, is entirely down to the women's liberation movement and um, wider feminist movement, I think, in meaning that um, for a girl... Growing up as I was, my mother very much wanted to um, bring me up exactly as she had been brought up. But by the time I was growing up, I could see there were options and that I could ignore her 
and I could get away, I could escape. And I did. And it was a great improvement. You know, I'm very grateful for it. Did you ever try and show your mother that she could escape too at a certain point? And do you think that's it was done? You couldn't bring feminism back to your own mother? Well, my mother, as my mother said, she actually always, um, after my younger brother was five, she worked all the time. She worked full time. So she always, um, I used to tell her how to be a feminist. And she used to say, Ma, but, but Jenny, um, I, work, I, I work full time. I'm the main breadwinner in our house. How am I not a feminist? It was about having fun. We tried to have fun. It's not that easy, as you know. <laughs> no, no. That was a sort of a beautiful answer and deep and would give me thousands more questions if we have more time. But um, I just wanted to say thank you, Jenny, for um, talking to us about your piece and being so open about all of the things um, in it. It doesn't not touch someone's life, writing this sort of thing. So thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening. You can find a link to LRB pieces relevant to this episode in the description below.